0: Hello and welcome to In All of Us Command. I'm Aaron. I'm Kate. And I'm Dan. And we will be learning about national anthems. Every week we will choose a new country at random, we will learn a little bit about this country, and then we will listen to their national anthem. After listening, we will rate the anthem based on several criteria and see how they all stack up in our humble opinion. We don't want you to think because of the title that we think very highly of O Canada, Canada. We don't like it and we plan to dunk on it every chance we get. So, we are going to be talking this week about Guatemala.
1: Aaron, something has occurred to me. What's that? Now that we have guests, maybe they all don't hate O Canada.
0: Yeah, do you hate O Canada?
2: Uh, I'm not particularly fond of it.
0: No. Yeah. I was pretty sure you were on board with this whole concept. Okay, now we've cleared that up. Good. <laughs> all right, so Guatemala is our country of the week. Um, we can agree that we all knew this was a Latin American country. Yes. See. Si. Um, and we can agree that we probably didn't know that much else about it. Maybe that there was some Mayan presence there.
1: I don't know if I even knew that much.
0: All right.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's about what I was on board for.
0: So Guatemala is in Central America. It is bordered by Mexico to the north and west, Belize to the east, El Salvador and Honduras to the southeast. Uh, it connects to the Caribbean Sea, Uh, on the east side, just south of where it meets Belize, and it connects to the Pacific Ocean along the whole southwestern coast. So the ancient history of Guatemala is essentially the ancient history of the Mayan people. It was the center of the Mayan Empire. Uh, Guatemala, and particularly Belize and southern Mexico, the Yucatan Peninsula is basically the southeasternmost point in Mexico, and that was where a lot of the uh, important Mayan cultural like ruins and artifacts and stuff have been found that's where um oh i i meant to look up the pronunciation chichen it's or whatever it is 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 on the Yucatan peninsula i know what that is um So the Mayan civilization first formed uh, around 300 CE in the lowlands of the Paten region of northern Guatemala, which is basically right at the base of the Yucatan Peninsula, where it connects to the mainland. Uh, Their power would really spread through that peninsula, uh, and they were definitely influenced by, possibly descended from the earlier Olmec people. So the Olmecs had settled along the Gulf of Mexico, and they are really the forerunners for a lot of these ancient uh, Latin American civilizations we talk about, like the Aztecs, the Incas. A lot of these civilizations took inspiration, at least from the Olmecs. They function, for Central and South America, almost similar to the way the Greeks function in Europe if that makes sense. Uh but if they are the Greeks of like southern Mexico then the Guatemalans are the Romans who or the the Mayans at least are the Romans who take these ideas and run with them. Um they the classic period of the Mayan civilization would last for nearly 9 or nearly 700 years, sorry, through about 950 CE. Uh, It's during that period that Chichen Itza would be built. Also, uh, the Temple of the Jaguar would be built in Tikal, which is in the uh, Paten region. And I'm going to link to some pictures in the show notes of uh, these places, because there are some incredible, incredible structures left behind by the Mayan civilization. Um, So the classic period would be defined by the creation of the famous Mayan calendar system, uh, writing systems, and a lot of that, mo- the, sorry, the most recognizable architecture. So we're talking about palaces and pyramids. We're talking about the epic ball courts where they played that game that people love to talk about where they executed the losing team.
1: Wait, is that the one they play in um, Road to El Dorado? With Absolutely. the poop on the thing? And the I
0: love that movie. I think Road to <laughs> El Dorado is... M- I don't know. It's a little sketchy. I feel like there's a lot of like Aztec imagery in that movie. Uh, But it's I guess it was more the Aztecs that were around when Cortez gets there. So I think it's more of an Aztec thing in that movie. But certainly there's some Mayan inspirations as well. Okay. I love that movie so much. (laughs) Cortez is going to come up. Oh, Cortez in that movie voiced by Jim Cummings, Winnie the Pooh for like decades. (laughs) It's the best. Uh, The other really defining aspect of the classic period is their use of stelae. And these are a sort of obelisk that was really popular within the Mayan civilization. But what stands out about the stelae is that they had legends and stories and even like current events inscribed on them but with dates so we know when these stelae were built and for some of them I think we even know sort of the dates by the Mayan calendar that these events happened which is pretty cool Uh, By 1000 CE, though, most of these famous temples and palaces that the Mayans had built were more or less completely deserted. And this is a thing that there's not really a scholarly consensus on why it happened. The most popular explanations tend to be overpopulation and exhaustion of the local resources, but I also saw some works claiming that there's a lot of ancient Mayan Sort of agricultural practices still in effect in the region, and that would call into question the idea that they sort of didn't know how to steward their resources. Uh, the settlements further north in the Yucatan Peninsula would remain inhabited for a few more centuries, but would ultimately be mostly deserted by the time the Spanish arrived. So we will probably talk a little bit more about the post-classic era Mayans in our episode on Belize, uh, which is basically entirely on like the eastern Yucatan Peninsula. Uh, the Spanish arrived in Mexico in, the fif- in uh, 1519, led by Hernán Cortés, our, our old buddy from history class, uh, possibly the most famous conquistador uh, at least here, I would say,
2: I'd I'd posit that I don't think I can name too many more.
0: Yeah, we're we're gonna come across very briefly, I'd say, his biggest competitor. Uh, but we'll get to that in a couple years. Uh, Hernan Cortez would land in the Tabasco region of of Mexico, which is not far northwest of the Guatemalan border. He began to establish a base there. Not long after arriving, Cortez would famously sink his ships in the harbor, basically declaring, like, we're not turning back. We're not retreating. We are going to stay and build our shit here.
1: Like, that seems dumb for other reasons.
0: It is. It's a dumbass move. But
1: okay. like, it's it's Cortez wasn't a good guy. No, I know that. But that seems stupid.
0: Fair enough. That's all. Wasteful. It definitely is that. Uh, especially when we will see what happens with the ships from his close compatriot in a few years. Um, over the course of about three years, from 1519 to 1521, Cortes would completely conquer the Aztec people, more or less. He would overthrow the Aztec Empire and claim Mexico for Spain. Um I'm going to go on a quick little tangent here because (laughs) I love Tabasco sauce (laughs) and Cortez landed in the Tabasco region of Mexico. So I wanted to look in to see if the sauce came from the Tabasco region. And the answer it turns out is no, the sauce is named for the Tabasco pepper, which in turn is named for the region of Mexico. Uh, the pepper though was invented in Louisiana. The, uh, The actual Tabasco company uses a copycat recipe from a guy named Manusel White, who I just had to talk about for a moment. Uh, Big ol' slave-owning piece of shit. I don't want anyone to come out of this thinking Manusel White was a good guy, but he might be the guy who like mainstream popularized the use of hot sauce in America, particularly the use of Tabasco peppers and the Tabasco company copied his recipe. Like, he was a whole politician and general and shit, but he's only remembered for being a real big lover and promoter of hot sauces. (laughs) I just think it's a great little
2: footnote in history. Yep, that's wonderful. Good to know.
0: So during his conquest, Cortez would place a guy named Pedro Alvarado in charge of Tenochtitlan, which is the city that would become later Mexico City. Uh, Alvarado's time in Tenochtitlan would be notable for a day that would become, well, I suppose, a night that would become known as Noche Triste or Sad Night, and this was in June 1520. Basically, a bunch of indigenous Aztecs had gathered in like the town square for a festival and Alvarado was like, oh shit, it's a revolt. And straight up massacred over 200 Aztec chiefs. The Aztecs obviously retaliated because what the fuck? Uh, Cortez had to flee the city His procession was caught by the Aztecs and it escalated into like a full on battle for the city in which the Aztecs would reclaim it for a full year. By the time the Spanish reclaimed Tenochtitlan, they, I guess, had somehow forgiven Alvarado and inexplicably named him mayor of the city again.
1: That's weird.
0: Uh... In 1524, though Alvarado would found a city called Santiago de, la, de los Caballeros de Guatemala, uh, and that means Saint James of the Knights, Santiago de los Caballeros. It's actually the full proper name of Santiago, Dominican Republic. Um, local, this was meant to be the capital of the the new sort of Guatemala part of their conquest but local hostilities with the indigenous people would make that basically unworkable. It was built on an old Mayan ruin. Um, so the capital basically bounced around for a year or two before landing in what I imagine the city was known as Guatemala at the time, but is now known as Antigua or the full name is Antigua Guatemala, which just means old Guatemala. Um, What I think is kind of funny is that it's, like, three miles outside of where he had tried to found Santiago. So they just ended up being like, this actually is the best place. We're just going to do it far enough away that, like, the locals will leave us alone. Um, Alvarado would become then the first governor of the Captaincy General of Guatemala. And the Captaincy General of Guatemala included basically all of central america so we're talking a little bit of south mexico uh maybe some of belize i found maps were a little bit sketchy on this some of them included it some of them didn't and we're gonna get into some debate over the ownership of belize uh but that then includes all of guatemala el salvador honduras nicaragua and costa rica So that's all included in the captaincy general of Guatemala. Uh, Alvarado would end up selling his ships and weapons to the guy that I would say is probably second to Cortez in conquistador fame levels. And that is Francisco Pizarro, who we will get into a lot in our episode on Peru uh, Pizarro would essentially conquer the entire Inca Empire and found Lima, which is the modern day capital of Peru. Uh, I believe he actually founded Lima the same year that Alvarado sold him the ships. Uh, Piz- er, uh, Alvarado would die a couple years later fighting a revolt in Mexico. er, Alvaro Pizarro, however, died an absolutely legendary death that I am going to save for our Peru episode whenever it comes up. But uh, yeah, it's fucking brutal. Uh, Antigua would be destroyed by earthquakes in 1776. I couldn't find a lot of anyone talking about what happened in those sort of intervening 250 years. So I think we can assume a lot of sort of run of the mill colonial shittiness, but no like big events that I could find anyone talking about. Uh, after Antigua was, des- was destroyed, the modern capital of Guatemala City would be made capital on the Mayan ruin of Kaminaljuyu. I believe there had been a city there for a few years before it was made capital after the earthquakes, but I couldn't find anyone willing to talk about what the name was in that period. I do not believe the Spanish are nice enough to have left the old Mayan name in place. That doesn't sound like them. In 1810... A man named Agustin de de Iturbide, uh, I'm just going to be using his last name from now on, Iturbide, uh, was offered a post in the Mexican Revolutionary Army. He would turn down that post and decide instead to side with the Spanish loyalists. Iturbide was an incredibly conservative, like, royalist, pro-church-should-have-all-the-power. He's not necessarily a good dude. Um, he he sided with the Spanish loyalists. So the army that had offered him a post, the Revolutionary Army, would be put down about a year later in 1811. But Iturbide really made his name with the loyalists by providing basically the, the finishing defa- defense against another insurgency five years later. Uh, he would be released, though, a year after this, like, Pivotal battle for widespread allegations of cruelty and corruption. Again, Iturbide is not a good dude. His story kind of seems like he might be for a little bit, but he's not. <laughs> in 1820, there was a liberal coup in Spain which briefly deposed the monarchy. It uh, would only last for about three years, but that's really a story probably for our Spain episode. I believe this is sort of the beginning of the end for the Spanish Inquisition, which is briefly put on hold uh, during this three-year period. Uh, the only thing, though, that It's Herbide hated more than Rebels to the Spanish Monarchy was the idea of democracy taking hold in his beloved homeland of Mexico.
2: Gotta hate it. (laughs) (laughs) It's
0: awful. So, in 1821, he published what was known as Plan de Iguala, which demanded independence from the newly liberal Spain, as well as a ban on all religions other than Roman Catholicism and a total defense of their powers in the nation. This would become very popular with the local elite, however, (laughs) less popular with poor and indigenous folks. (laughs) Like that's
1: just the history of the world summed up right there.
0: Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Uh, This would result in the forming of the army of the three guarantees named for the three demands of plan de iguala in on August 24th, 1821, the Treaty of Cordoba was signed, recognizing the independence of Mexico from Spain. So Iturbide's got this whole, like, coalition that he's built to make independence right now of all the elites. But remember, Iturbide sucks. He's a huge dick. The historical record is very clear about this. (laughs) Not much debate going on. It doesn't really seem like it. You can maybe support the shit he did, but it doesn't seem like there's much debate over whether he was a nice man. (laughs) So his coalition quickly falls apart, and he would declare himself Augustan I, Emperor of Mexico by 1822. Bold. And the Emperor of Mexico at this point is a phenomenally large thing. Because remember, this is before all the states have seceded. Like to become part of the USA. So we're talking California, New Mexico, Texas, all of modern Mexico, Belize, Guatemala, all the way down through Central America. Like Texas through Belize, Texas through Panama is this empire. That
1: was one guy? One guy. Oh my God.
0: It didn't last long. (laughs) He would be forced to abdicate in 1823 as support grew for a rebellion that was led by a guy named Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana, who would later, not immediately, but a few years down the line, would become president of Mexico himself. Uh, Santa Ana is a fascinating man who, if I draw Mexico, I'm going to deep dive into Santa Ana. It was during his presidency that Texas seceded from Mexico, like all that Remember the Alamo shit, that was him that fought that battle. Uh, Super fascinating, dude. I read a bunch about him and was like, oh no, I need to get back to research. Uh, So after Iturbide abdicated in 1823, Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, Costa Rica, and Nicaragua would come together to declare independence from Mexico as the United Provinces of Central America. And it seems that the uh, the whole Mexican Empire thing is a complete footnote historically to a lot of people. I just couldn't not talk about it because Eterbida is such a great character.
1: I didn't know about the Mexican Empire. No,
0: and half the sources I looked at like didn't even mention it or it got like a sentence fragment. Um, it, it really gets glossed over to the point that the date of independence on the Guatemalan flag, like they have a date on their flag and it is the date that the Mexican empire was founded is when they count like, or at least the date that the Mexican empire got independence from Spain is the date that Guatemala counts officially as their independence day, which is interesting. Um, so in 1823, after It's, it's day has abdicated. All of these countries I just mentioned declare themselves the United Provinces of Central America. And the capital of this whole federation is Guatemala City. But each of the five states st- still have their own president and, like, complete local autonomy. Uh, the United Providence was still Provinces was still, at its founding, a deeply conservative religious state. This is a step forward for independence it's not necessarily that much of a step forward for the aforementioned poor and indigenous folks in the region uh, however into this period a liberal wave quickly overtook the country and tried to strip back the way- the rights of the church the church state conflict combined with a cholera outbreak and a number of indigenous revolts would ultimately weaken the power of the united provinces to the point that it would fall but we'll get into a little backstory here of how exactly that happened there was this guy named rafael carrera and he was of mixed european and indigenous descent he hated the liberal government so much that he actually raised an army that took guatemala city and declared itself independent, like de- declared all of Guatemala independent from the United Provinces. At that point, with all of the stuff I just mentioned that had already weakened the influence of the United Provinces, basically all of the member states followed suit. And then the United Provinces era was sort of done. So Rafael Carrera would take control of Guatemala with a military dictatorship and would declare himself president for life by 1854. He was heavily supported by Spanish conservatives in the region and restored all of the rights of the church that the liberal government of the United Provinces had stripped back. Carrera's regime, really what I saw every source agree on is that he wanted to return things to the way they were during the Spanish regime, just without that whole pesky Spain thing. <laughs> yeah. Who uh, wouldn't want that? Yeah, right? <laughs> that sounds fucking great for rich people. Yeah, like, no complaints. <laughs> I'm going to mention now that Carrera would be the first of many, many Guatemalan leaders to start arguing with the British over who gets to own Belize. At the moment, Belize is British Honduras, is what it's known as. Uh, The Guatemalans want it. The British don't want them to have it.
1: Again, the history of the world summarized.
0: Yeah, (laughs) It's, it's pretty straightforward. I only bring it up now so... We can have it on record that this argument is going to continue for the better part of 150 years going forward.
2: That also sounds like the British.
0: Yes, yeah. absolutely. This is likely something we'll talk about in a lot more detail in our Belize episode.
1: What scares me is when we have to cover England and like talk oh, about I know. all that. I don't, England might I don't have to be a to. fucking three-parter. <laughs> England's gonna go on for, like, weeks and weeks while we talk about all of their astounding colonial exploits.
0: We're gonna have to skim some real shit. That's true. Carrera would die in 1865, and his successor would be overthrown by the heavily liberal Justo Rofino Barrios. Now, Barrios is... Definitely a bit of a positive influence in Guatemala. However, I do want to be clear that he is also a dictator who doesn't really let people take him out of power. <laughs> <laughs> He's going to sound real good. I just want to paint the whole coloration of this thing with that. Presidents sense. for life
2: are rarely good guys. Yeah,
0: exactly. And that's that's what Barrios is. But he does a lot of good stuff. He expels the Jesuits from the country. He confiscates tons of church property, establishes civil marriage and divorce, so it's no longer like the sole property of the church to marry and divorce people. Uh, He expands all sorts of infrastructure, and he begins to focus the nation's uh, infrastructure on growing coffee, which is, I think it's sort of tied with clothing, which they also export a lot of, Uh, Each of them account for about 12% of Guatemala's total export value and uh, are tied for number one in that regard. Uh, Coffee's a big deal to the Guatemalan economy. And Carrero badly, badly wanted to reinstate the five-state United Provinces. Uh, He would try every conceivable political angle to make this happen and no one else was biting. Because, like you really want it to come from anyone other than Guatemala at this point, right? Like they were the ones in charge. They were also kind of the ones who fucked it up. (laughs) You kind of want any of the other countries to go, Hey, maybe we should all get back together. But Guatemala going, Hey, I want to be in charge again. Doesn't sound that attractive. If, if I'm someone from one of these other countries.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I can, I can see where you're, where you're coming from.
0: Uh, when all of these political avenues were exhausted, he would invade El Salvador in 1885 to try to make this happen by force. However, he would die in a battle early on in the war. Uh, <laughs> What I thought was kind of cool is this was still an era where presidents like march in battle, apparently.
2: Yeah, that's what I was thinking too. It's like serves you right. Right. <laughs> being president for life and then being like, I'm gonna
0: just go to war now. Fair enough. That's that's a decent point. So a couple presidents would pass after Carrero. Um Carrera, who including his nephew, who would be assassinated in 1898. After uh Carrera's nephew's assassination uh, Manuel Estrada Cabrera would take power and Cabrera was an economically minded president he focused along the same lines as uh, Carrera before him sorry I I fucked up so bad in my notes and I wrote Cabrero sometimes and Carrera sometimes so I'm probably fucking these up half the time I'm really sorry about that it's okay um <laughs> Cabrera he continued along those lines of building the exports and agricultural uh, practices of the country he also really notably began the country's dealings with the United Fruit Company this is a massive American fruit conglomerate that sells bananas if you will remember Kate in my last episode on Moldova we met our old friend Sam Zamuri, Sam the banana man I remember Sam Out of old Bessarabia, he would found the Cayamel Fruit Company. So at this point, he is running the Cayamel Fruit Company, which has not yet been sold to the United Fruit Company. He is just happily working away in Honduras. He is going to be uh, running a coup in Honduras in about 10 years, but that's, again, a story for another time. Uh, I only bring him up because he... When the United Fruit Company really gets cooking in this story, he will be in charge of them. Uh, However, he is not technically involved in the United Fruit Company right this second. Uh, Cabrera would hire them to run the country's postal service in 1901 and also to build an important railway line in 1903. So, Wait, a... A fruit, a fruit company? A fruit company, yeah. So we're. it's important to understand that they're not just moving in and buying up a bunch of land to sell bananas. At a, in the future, they're going to own the majority of the railway lines in the country. They've owned the postal service for half a century by that point. Like, they are unbelievably embedded in the the very fabric of the way this nation runs as a modern nation. This sounds
1: like it's going bad places. It is,
0: yeah, you're right. They basically contract a lot of the, like, modernizing of their infrastructure out to this American banana company. Which, (laughs) (laughs) (sighs) it's messy. Um, Cabrera, was, again, a dictator and stayed in power until 1920 through enriching himself and limiting human rights in Guatemala. In 1920, there was an armed revolt that would end with the cabinet actually being forced to declare him insane, which is pretty sick. Uh, He would die in prison four years later. After he leaves office, we would enter yet another power vacuum period. It turns out long dictatorships are bad for a country. So we're talking about <laughs> short presidencies where nothing of note is accomplished because, you know, the military doesn't listen to them or the people don't respect them or whatever. In 1931, 11 years after Cabrera's been ex- er, uh, put out of office, General Jorge Ubico would become president following a military coup. So for those counting at home, This is Guatemala's fourth dictator in just over a century.
1: That's a lot of dictators. Yep. Too many dictators.
0: It's too many dictators. It's not good. It's unclear to me whether the US were directly involved with Ubico taking power in Guatemala, but they were definitely receptive to it. He was a big fan of the Cabrera model of hiring the United Fruit Company to be the government. (laughs) Time tested. (laughs) It hasn't gone wrong so far. How could it it ever go wrong?
1: Just give it to the banana people.
0: (laughs) So they probably encouraged him coming to power, though I don't think they like directly made that happen per se Um, and they would certainly be helpful in his holding power through 1944 where he continued to be incredibly friendly with the United Fruit Company by the end of Ubico's time in power the United Fruit Company holds more than 40% of the total land of Guatemala
2: Go banana guys
0: Oh yeah this is, this is when the, really the height of Guatemala's sort of banana republic period. It's an incredible, that's a real historical term. It's not just a clothing store. Yeah,
2: I'm just finding that out right now.
0: Yeah, it was sort of a, a, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, I can't find the word I'm looking for. It was sort of a mean term for poor countries that relied on a single agricultural export, often bananas. Not the company? Derogatory is the word I Derogatory, was looking for yes but
2: um,
1: So But it's just a clothing store, I'm so confused Did they know what it meant when they called themselves Banana Republic? No idea Okay, that's weird
0: Yeah, it's it's not a great name, I don't know why they chose it
1: It never even occurred to me, okay
0: uh, But yeah, the, the state that Guatemala's in right now That's what Banana Republic means, basically Uh, There was a large general strike across... Oh, sorry, I skipped one thing here. Ubico's government was uh, really struggling financially in 1941, and U.S. was sort of tempting at them going, hey, maybe if you get in on this war, we'll uh, send you some cash. And they would stay neutral until two days after Pearl Harbor, when I imagine the U.S. had escalated there, we'll, we'll give you some fucking cash, and Guatemala entered World War II. Uh, there was that general strike in '44 that forced Ubico to resign. After a brief interim this time, not as huge of a power vacuum, a guy named Juan Jose Aravallo would become president. And I believe this time at least somewhat democratically.
2: No military coup?
0: I don't think so. That's kind of the problem for the U.S. Was in there, a few years.
1: Was there an election?
0: I believe so, okay. yeah. I, I believe Arevalo was democratically elected. I didn't put that in my notes, but I believe that's the case. Uh, he would create, during his time as president, sweeping labor and social security reforms, really overhaul the whole education system of the country. He does a lot to, to start bringing Guatemala into the modern age.
2: That that sounds like elected official stuff more than <laughs> dictator stuff.
0: Uh, Ubico, during this time, in what I think is a fascinating historical footnote, fled to New Orleans, where he would live out the last two years of his life in the greatest sitcom never made. <laughs> this ex-Guatemalan dictator just, like... Being woken up in his apartment in the French Quarter because a parades marching through. I don't know what New Orleans was like in the 40s. I don't know. You
2: can, you can get anything on Netflix
0: nowadays.
2: <laughs> Give it a rom-com aspect and it'll get made in like two weeks.
0: Uh, during Arevalo's presidency, there was an unsuccessful coup attempt in 1949. One of the leaders of this attempt was a guy named Carlos Castillo Arma. I just want y'all to tuck that name away in your, in your pockets for a minute. It'll come back up. Uh, a lot of the people involved, particularly the leaders, uh, would be exiled from Guatemala after this coup attempt. And a lot of them would move into Honduras. Uh, Aravalo would be succeeded in 1951 by a guy named Jacobo Arbenz and Arbenz would continue again along Aravalo's path of social and labor reform but he really made agrarian reform the cornerstone of his whole policy and this included in particular a policy that would involve redistributing unused land from huge landowners to non-landowning farmers um the UFC owns a phenomenal amount of land that they're not doing anything with. This is another thing where something like, I think it's like 70% of the farming land is owned by 2% of the population. Most of that being the United Fruit Company. So he's trying to redistribute this land to non-landowning farmers. Um, And he, he is paying for this land. Like, he's not just coming in and seizing it by force. But what happened, as far as I can tell, is these big foreign companies like to come in and when tax season rolled around, they'd go, oh, that's a cheap, shitty piece of land. That's worth nothing. So they wouldn't have to pay a lot of tax on it. But then when the government was so t- suddenly like, we are buying your land at the value that you put on your taxes... They're like, um, it's worth way more than that. We were lying to you. You should pay us the actual amount we want here. Funny how that
2: always works. Like, one way for the person with more money than for the people who don't own land.
0: Yeah, it's... It's so shitty how this happens. And at this point... The Kayamel Fruit Company, which orchestrated that Honduran coup I mentioned briefly earlier, they have now been sold to the United Fruit Company. And Sam Zamuri, their owner, is currently the president of the United Fruit Company. So Sam Zamurri, good old Sam the Banana Man, goes running to daddy government to tell them about the horrifying communist regime of Yakabo Arbenz. The... United Fruit Company at this point is unbelievably well-connected. Like, their law firm is straight-up owned by the Secretary of State. Uh, That guy's brother is the president of the CIA. (laughs) So, and the the guy who runs the CIA (laughs) owns stock in the United Fruit Company.
1: So we're all controlled by the United Fruit Company is what you're saying. In
0: 1951, Sam Zamuri kind of goes to the government and goes, yeah, these guys are shitty communists. And I couldn't find anyone explaining it this way. But in my head, he saw where it was going and remembered his time in Honduras and basically went, fuck this and retires. (laughs) I couldn't find the name of Sam Zamuri's successor as president of the United Fruit Company, but uh, he basically sets this whole thing in motion and fucks off most likely to his old cotton plantation summer home because he's a big old piece of shit. Uh, Presidents of Tulane University in New Orleans currently live in his old mansion. That means you, Michael Fitz. (laughs) Uh, so through the early fifties, the U S would start a huge propaganda campaign against the Arbenz government. This would include an incredible film that I managed to find on YouTube and will link to in the show notes. It's 12 minutes long and is fucking wild. It's called why the Kremlin hates bananas. Right on. <laughs> it's... Right on. It's so, so good. I, I really recommend clicking on that link. Uh, This... A lot of this campaign would be run by Edward Bernays, who is, like, a really important... He's known as, like, the father of public relations. One of his major accomplishments is this anti-communist propaganda against Guatemala. <laughs> so, this... At first, the U.S. doesn't really want to do an active coup, but by the time 1954 rolls around, they sort of back down from from that. <laughs> uh, you guys remember our old friend Carlos Castillo Armagh? Did you tuck that name away in your yeah, pockets? Yeah. yeah. So he's living in Honduras with a bunch of his old compatriots from the attempted coup on Arevalo's government. The U.S. recruits them. So in June of 1954, Armagh and 150 of his compatriots launch a ground assault into uh, Guatemala. The U.S. government basically launches a massive radio propaganda campaign implying that it's an enormous army marching in to take the capital, uh, also using this to jam all the radio signals they can. At the same time, straight-up American pilots fly over Guatemala City and bomb a bunch of important locations. Uh Arbenz would be forced to abandon the presidency and flee the country. We will get into a little bit more of the incredibly tragic story of his family's life in ironically the fun facts section.
1: <laughs> our fun facts take a turn sometimes.
0: <laughs> they do. We often get sad stories. Yeah. Um Armal would be made president after the coup. Doing his best to undo all the changes he could from the Aravallo and Arbenz gov- er, uh, yeah Arbenz governments, but he would be assassinated three years later in 1957. Uh, Fidel Castro's successful revolution in 1959. 1959- kicks off sort of a minor revolutionary spring across all of Central America and the Caribbean, and it inspires left-wing guerrilla forces to start fighting back against the U.S.-backed military government in 1960. This is the beginning of the Guatemalan Civil War, which would become the longest... i Probably not the longest war, but the longest civil war in Central American history. Uh, military control was briefly loosened in the late 60s however they would immediately tighten their grasp even further with the election of a guy named Carlos Arana Osorio in 1970. Osorio was known for his brutally violent repression of indigenous groups guerrilla groups and political opponents and that is the beginning of a pattern that's gonna keep going for way too fucking long to the point that like there's a guy towards the end of this that I had almost glossed over as just another shitty dude in a long string of shitty dudes until I found out he was the shittiest to the point of being on trial for genocide and crimes against humanity later on. That's how many shitty dudes we're starting right now.
1: What an accomplishment.
0: (laughs) So, uh, Osorio would lose the election in 74. However, the government would just completely throw out the results and place their own candidate in office. And this was a guy named Kjell Logarud Car- Garcia. He had a Norwegian father, uh, is why his name is Kjell. <laughs> uh, he would continue down the same path of uh, Aranya, of violent oppression of all of his political opponents and indigenous groups. There was a major earthquake during Garcia's reign in which over 20,000 were killed, over 70,000 were injured, and over a million were left homeless. It was during Garcia's reign that the Guatemalan presidency as an institution had gained such a bad reputation that Uh, U.S. President Jimmy Carter would completely cut off military assistance to the Guatemalan government in 1977. Garcia's successor would keep on keeping on after another stolen election in 78. In 1981, the U.K. granted independence to Belize. Guatemala (laughs) threw a whole little bitch fit about this. Uh, England, you guys are great. I, I actually, I didn't put it in my notes when I first saw that uh, What's-His-Face was was starting to argue for Belize, because I knew they didn't own it. And then when I got to this shit fit, I was like, oh, no, I'm going to put in the 150-year build-up to this little tantrum that Guatemala throws. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yet another stolen election in 1982 would lead to yet another military coup. So the government stole the election, but then again, the the military fought back against that stolen election and put another guy who wasn't elected in the office. And this is Rios Montt. And he had actually properly won that election in 1974, the first stolen one that got thrown out. But, uh, you know, he didn't. Win this one. This was a coup. Uh, <laughs>
2: <laughs> that seems to be how you actually win them in this in this, the history I- of Guatemala. That is
0: true. Um, Rios Mont would, you know, all these guys sort of get in on promises of, "I'm going to end the political violence." And in the back of their mind, all of their plans for ending the political violence seem to be, but I'll be the one that actually wipes out all of my political opponents. <laughs> so I was like, I'm going to end the political violence by finally killing all those fucking socialists in the hills. <laughs> it's uh, Rios Mont would keep on doing that. And he was particularly brutal with uh, indigenous people within Guatemala. He is the one who is being well, was convicted of war crimes by the government all. And then that was appealed. And then by the time the appeal was sort of happening, he was deemed not mentally fit to speak on the subject and then would die a couple years later with the appeal, not having been decided. Um, I'm going to say probably fuck this dude. I, I don't think I'm going to get a lot of resistance there.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: We're good. Uh, Rios Mont would be overthrown by general Oscar Vitores, who promises the same thing as every leader before him and fails in the same way as all of them. If I am the Guatemalan people at this point, I am so fucking sick of these presidents. Could you name like they've all run together. It's there's been so many and they've all been the exact fucking same now.
2: Yeah, no, I've got I've got no clue.
0: It's during uh, his time vittores's time in office that there's really a new push for civilian rule and a new constitution would be written in 1985 with an emphasis on civil rights the civilian president who was elected uh, again i think a proper election tentatively at least uh was a guy named marco Saritzo Aravallo, a new Aravallo. uh we're just going to call him Saritzo, though to avoid confusion Uh, During his time in office, the guerrilla bands had largely organized into the Guatemalan National Revolutionary Unity. And obviously, those words are in a different order in Spanish. So the uh, acronym is the URNG. And they're another group that's going to come up uh, again in our fun facts, weirdly enough. Uh, But this is basically a lot of the major guerrilla bands, like left-wing guerrilla bands that have been fighting the U.S. government... Have sort of grouped into one cohesive thing during Saritzo's time in office. Um, By 1991, Guatemala would officially abandon claims of sovereignty over Belize. They're, they're finally done arguing about that one. Saratso's government would start making moves towards national conciliation to end the guerrilla warfare. Finally, someone whose plan isn't, I'm just going to kill them all. <laughs> uh, his government was additionally given some really high profile pressure by a really fascinating woman, an indigenous, excuse me, an indigenous Mayan woman named Rigoberta Menchu. Her father was a human rights activist who was killed in a protest when she was young and then largely I think due to that political affiliation her mother and brother were both brutally tortured and murdered by death squads uh backed by the US like US puppet government basically in Guatemala The fruit company The fruit company oh, yeah that's awful Ugh. Uh so she would be forced to flee to Mexico after all of this and would become a high-profile activist for the end of the counterinsurgency campaigns, basically. She would win the Nobel Prize in 1992 and would be one of the major factors that would start winding down the violence in Guatemala. Sarazo's uh, successor was a guy named Jorge Serrano Elias, and he would... Uh, in his two years in office, try to dissolve the Supreme Court and Parliament and make himself the dictator. No. But he Stop would be forced out of office by 1993. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, his, day
1: another dictator here.
0: <laughs> his, like, running mate would finish out his term and then President Alvaro Arzu would be elected in 1996 and by December of the same year would finally sign the peace treaty ending the Guatemalan Civil War that had been ongoing now since 1960. More than 200,000 people died in this war. A lot of the, the people that died, too, were indigenous Mayan people who... Were, we're fighting back against an obviously oppressive government. That's really where I'm going to cut off now for history. There's certainly more to talk about, but it's a lot of stuff that I could not find. It was going to take me that long again to get through the last 20 years of, of Guatemalan history. And we're, we're starting to verge on sort of current events in, in how much the ongoing political evolution of Guatemala is still happening. I will just say that today, Guatemala is one of the poorest countries in Central America. It is still heavily feeling the wounds of the Civil War, as well as the U.S. war on drugs, which it has been a major site of. You guys want to hear some fun facts?
1: Are any of them fun?
0: Yeah, some of them are.
1: Okay, yeah.
2: Um are, are they all involving more
0: dictators? Like probably? Um I actually don't know that any of the dictators are going to come up here. We'll see. I don't think so.
2: <laughs> Cuz I can't I can't harken back to which one was which. Like for sure I can't.
0: One of the dictators is going to come up again in our uh anthem history section, but I don't think during fun facts. So, Let's get into famous people from Guatemala. We're going to start with someone who I am an enormous fan of. One of my very favorite actors working, a Guatemalan-American guy by the name of Oscar Isaac. Absolutely incredible actor, born in Guatemala City. Some of my favorite movies he's done are Drive, uh, particularly Inside Lewin Davis is a favorite of mine. Uh, ex machina and annihilation he's also very well known for being in dune in the new star wars trilogy and in x-men apocalypse uh i love oscar isaac so much
2: i i hated him so much in apocalypse
0: Uh, they he just got nothing to do in that movie it was not a very good movie I I can't blame him.
2: No, you're right. It wasn't
0: his fault. It was a bad movie. It was a bad movie.
1: I didn't see it. Was it actually like about the apocalypse? It's about
0: Apocalypse, the X-Men villain. Oh. The first mutant. Okay. I missed the
1: whole boat there. Sorry.
0: Uh, Manny Marocan Marocan is a Guatemalan-American mixing engineer who has won 10 Grammys. His family fled the Civil War in Guatemala when he was nine and moved to L.A. And this dude has an unbelievable list of credits to his name. I'm going to list so many and I am still going to skip so many. Um, one of his earliest credits, I do Couldn't find out what tracks on the album he mixed, but he did mix a lot of the tracks on the Cisco album that Thong Song is on. (laughs) So I really hope this guy mixed Thong Song. Uh, But he engineered uh, a lot of Kanye West's first four albums through 808s and Heartbreak. Uh, Also, The Life of Pablo. He did a bunch of albums for Alicia Keys. He did John Mayer's Continuum, Natasha Bedingfield's Unwritten, Rihanna's Good Girl Gone Bad, Tegan and Sarah's Heartthrob, Tyler the Creator's Wolf, and FKA Twigs' Magdalene are among the albums he has worked on. He won the 2021 Grammy for Record of the Year as he is the guy who mixed Circles by Post Malone. Uh, enormous hit. He was also nominated for the same award for mixing Chandelier by Sia, Fuck You by CeeLo Green, and Umbrella by Rihanna. Uh, A fun side note for sort of the time we're in is he produced a lot of Jasmine Sullivan's debut album, Fearless, and Jasmine Sullivan's most recent album, Hotels, is A, incredibly named, and B, one of the most critically acclaimed albums of the past year. Uh, So that's that's Manny Marocan, who's had an unbelievable career.
1: That's a resume. And I know you said you skipped a lot of stuff, too.
0: The the Grammy Museum actually features an interactive exhibit where you can, like, put on a pair of headphones and he'll come on and teach you how to mix a song.
1: Okay, that's super cool. Where's the museum?
0: I didn't check, actually. Okay. Uh, Next up is where we're going to get into a bit, the super tragic story of what happened to the Arbenz family after they fled Guatemala. And I, I had found the name Arabella Arbenz on sort of a list of famous people from Guatemala. And we are going to tell this story a little bit from her perspective. So she was the daughter of Jacobo Arbenz, and his time in president was one from when she was... 11 to 14 and having read a couple like newspaper excerpts talking about her around that time, very, very icky, very gross. Everyone talks about how hot she is. She's a literal child. Um, there's, "Oh, I actually found a quote that I'll read on Wikipedia that I believe was from this period and was written by a guy who would later become her lover." Um, I won't go through the whole quote, it's too long. but he he tells a story where she's like, Mouthing off to him and he calls her a fucking little brat. And then our, our Ben's the president, calls him up later and is like, I heard you insulted my daughter. And he goes, yeah, I called her a fucking little brat. And the president goes, yeah, she is a fucking little brat, but she's my daughter and you'll be respectful to her. And that journalist would end up being like a highly publicized lover of her later on. We'll get into it. Her whole story is deeply icky.
1: Yeah, that, that's really weird.
0: And Icky is a word that comes up several times in my notes, by the way. It's just, the, the best word I have to describe how I feel about everything that happened to this girl. Um, so when Yacabo Arbenz was exiled from Guatemala, she was actually at boarding school here in Canada. So the Arbenz family would flee... Guatemala through Mexico to Canada to pick her up where they would later flee to Switzerland uh, at Switzerland they were basically told you have to all renounce your Guatemalan uh, citizenship so we know that you're not going to like participate in any sort of fighting back against this and Yakabo was basically like fuck that like I- I'm not going to do that so they they flee a couple more places, and they would end up sending Arabella to boarding school in Moscow for a short time, where what I found was fascinating is I guess she felt that uh, Latin American students were mistreated at this school and actually led a small rebellion of Latin American students against this repressive Moscow boarding school.
2: That's kind of great. Which
0: again, a movie that needs to get made. Yeah, that's
2: a YA novel. <laughs> yeah.
0: The what I read said that Yakabo was like disappointed in her, but I like to imagine that he was disappointed in her sort of for the cameras and then behind closed doors was like, yeah, you tell him. <laughs> I
1: hope that's true.
0: Um the family would end up accepting an invitation from Fidel Castro to move to Cuba in 1960. Arabella, though, is 20 at this point and decides to stay behind and move to Paris, where she becomes a fashion model. Uh, She would become really well known for highly publicized romances at this time, including that journalist who wrote that weird thing about her being a little fucking brat. Uh, Also a television producer who cast her in a super icky experimental film where she plays a girl who fucks her brother and then they murder her brother's wife. Um it's it's all super weird. Uh by the mid-sixties she was basically addicted to a lot of drugs and she was in a relationship with renowned bullfighter Jaime Bravo Arcega. Her breakup with this icky television producer had actually caused Mexico to be like, we don't want you here anymore because she's also kind of a refugee and people are sort of afraid to have her in their country. So she goes on tour with Arcega, this bullfighter, the whole time begging him to give up the sport because it's unbelievably dangerous. Uh, It's also really cruel, but I don't think that was necessarily her gripe with it. She just didn't want Arcega to die. Uh, One day, Arcega had been badly gored during... Uh, a bullfighting bout and when she came to try and see him, he was super drunk, lashed out at her and she pulled out a gun and shot herself in front of him. The Arbenz family would come back to Mexico city for, uh, Arabella's funeral. And I think just sort of never got the energy to leave. Jacobo by all accounts, was just completely shattered by Arabella's suicide and would die within five years.
2: That is wholly, wholly depressing.
0: Yeah. Let's get yep. into possibly... It was not a fun fact.
1: No, I think we're both kind of shocked into silence at how...
0: I did preface it by saying it was deeply, deeply tragic.
1: Horrifying it. I know, but. Jeez. Okay. Carry on. (laughs)
0: Uh, Miguel Angel Asturias is possibly the most influential Guatemalan novelist of all time. Uh, He was also a poet, a playwright, and a journalist. His writing was heavily political and surrealist and frankly sounds fucking great. It sounds like so much fun. He's a really important... He gets... uh, compared a lot to, uh, Jorge Luis Borges. Uh, okay. he's one of those predecessors for that, like Latin American magic realism style. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of his most famous books are El Señor Presidente, which is a book about life under a brutal dictator. It's a harsh criticism of Cabrera. It was written in the early thirties in Mexico, but wouldn't be published until 1946. Uh, he would write later in his career, uh, epic trilogy called the banana trilogy which is unshockingly a scathing criticism of the united fruit company's operation in guatemala and other latin american countries
1: but it's just funny because it sounds like it could also be a children's show <laughs> like bananas and pajamas you know to,
0: what it makes me think of is the uh canadian railroad trilogy by gordon yeah, lightfoot that's definitely
2: where i went to
0: Uh, widely recognized as his masterpiece is a book named Hombres de Maiz is, I believe, the Spanish pronunciation or Men of Maize. Um, it's really hard to sum up any real idea of what this book is about through like a couple sentences, but, and this is a woefully inadequate summary. It follows an indigenous rebel leader named Gaspar Elam and his resistance to colonists in his land, as well as future generations' resistances inspired by Elam's sacrifice. Okay. Um, I just want to get the name of Gaspar Ilam out there because that is actually going to come up again in our next fun fact. But uh, Miguel Angel Asturias would actually... Like The the highest literary honor in all of Guatemala is the Miguel Ángel Asturias National Prize in Literature. The capital's national theater is named for him. He would become only the second Latin American author in history to win the Nobel Prize in Literature, which he won for the Men of Mays. He would also, interestingly, become one of the only writers to win the highest honor from both the Western world and the Soviet Union, as his criticism of the United Fruit Company in the Banana Trilogy won him the Lenin Peace Prize.
2: Oh, that's fascinating.
0: <laughs> that's super cool, right? Uh, there's a, The next guy I'm going to talk about is Rodrigo Asturias, and he's actually Miguel's son he would become a left-wing guerrilla fighter during the Guatemalan Civil War. And when he sort of rose to the top of the group he was fighting for, he took on the name Gaspar Ilam, inspired by his father's novel Men of Mays, to, as like a nom de guerre, as his like fucking battle name, uh, which I think is so cool.
1: That is very cool.
0: By the time the government was meeting with the URNG, to start the peace treaty dealings, uh, Rodrigo Asturias was one of the four heads of the URNG. Mm -hmm. So he was an incredibly important, uh, fighter for uh, like in this civil war. And he was the son of the nation's greatest novelist. Uh, there's an incredible architect who I only bring up because I want to link to a couple of his works that are incredible. He actually designed the, uh, Miguel Ángel Asturias Cultural Center, the national theater we talked about a moment ago. This guy's name is Efrain Racinos. Uh, He also designed the National Library of Guatemala. His work is really inspired by Frank Lloyd Wright and is like so amazing. I will link to a picture of that cultural center because it's unbelievable. And lastly, in the famous people section, I'm going to talk about Carlos Ruiz, who is nicknamed Pescado or Fish, and he is widely recognized as the greatest Guatemalan football player of all time. So he would make his biggest splash playing with the Los Angeles Galaxy of Major League Soccer, where he would lead the league in goal scoring and win the Most Valuable Player Award in 2002, which was his first year in Major League Soccer. Uh, he holds the all-time record for postseason goals in MLS history with 16 goals in 17 games. He's also 11th all-time in MLS history for goals in the regular season. Uh, he is, for the Guatemalan national team, the all-time leading scorer with 68 goals, as well as the player with the most games played at 133, which across all nations is tied for 102nd most national like international games played what i think is the coolest stat i found about carlos ruiz is despite the fact that guatemala has never once made it into the world cup he is the all-time leading scorer in the world cup qualifying rounds
1: Mm. oh that is cool i feel like that doesn't maybe happen that much like that yeah
0: so just a couple more fun facts before we take our anthem break. Out of all the countries we researched so far, Guatemala is second only to Uganda in coffee production and 10th in the world, producing over 200,000 metric tons of coffee per year. The Mayans invented chocolate, so Guatemala can be seen as the birthplace of chocolate. Yeah. Guatemala is today the world's 20th largest exporter of cocoa beans, selling just over 12,000 metric tons a year. However, I looked a little bit at this list and something just jumped out at me that I will mention just because it's fucking fascinating. Second place in cocoa bean production is Ghana, and they produce about 950,000 metric tons a year of cocoa beans however in first place is the ivory coast which produces over two million metric tons of cocoa beans per year that is well over four billion pounds of cocoa beans every year out of the ivory coast
2: that's wild
1: that's a heck of a lot of cocoa beans (laughs)
0: So as of 2018, they are 11th in the world for banana production, uh, producing over 4 million tons per year. Uh, the Guatemalan flag features, as I mentioned earlier, a coat of arms that lists the date of their independence from Spain, though it does, like the Treaty of Cordoba is the listed date, not the the day that they got independence from Mexico. Uh, and... There's just another place I want to mention that I think is really beautiful and I want to put a link to. And that's Lake Atitlan. It's one of the major tourist destinations in Guatemala, about 30 miles outside of Antigua. It is the deepest lake in Central America. It's surrounded by a bunch of volcanoes and Mayan ruins. It's just fucking beautiful. Um, I just want to link a picture to it. Uh, So that is all I have, and we are going to take a break now to listen to the anthem, which doesn't really have an official name per se. It is simply Imno Nacional. Que laman el yugo, ni tiranos que escupan tu faz, si mañana tu sueño. Welcome back. We have just taken a listen to Himno Nacional, uh, the national anthem of Guatemala. I I don't mind this one. I don't love it, to be honest. Uh, mostly in a musical sense, but there is actually a good deal of story behind this one. So I'm just gonna get into that first.
1: I'm excited. Story is so rare.
0: Oh, I know. And this one actually wasn't that hard to dig up. I just had to go to Spanish language Wikipedia to find some of it.
1: That's great. Uh,
0: So there was a a competition held originally in 1887 to select an anthem. Uh, However, this anthem or this competition was never really official, kind of. It wasn't really binding. Sort of the idea was to select a national anthem, but the winner wasn't automatically the National Anthem. So, it was won by uh, a relatively unknown martial band flautist, Uh, his composition won, and a poem by a guy named Ramon Pereira Molina. But this uh, martial band flautist was a guy named Rafael Alvarez Ovay, and he would compose the score that won unanimously in this 1887 competition, but this piece never became the anthem. Another... Competition was held in 1896, uh, where there was a poem selected to be the lyrics of the anthem, and again, won unanimously, but nobody would come forward to claim having written the poem that became the anthem. And weirdly enough, they actually used uh, Alvarez Ovai, the the flautist, they used his composition again, and just made it the actual anthem this time with the new poem.
1: So they kept the music and got new lyrics.
0: Exactly. Yeah.
1: Okay. That's weird that no one wanted to come forward to to, like to say that it was
2: theirs.
0: We'll get into it. Someone will come forward.
2: Okay. (laughs) That's fascinating. Yeah. Uh,
0: By the time this second competition had been held and it was selected officially as the anthem, Alvarez Ovi was actually working as a conductor at the national conservatory of music. Uh, so the first public performance would be held at the theater where he was conducting and he would lead the performance himself, which I thought was super cool. Yeah,
1: that's really neat.
0: Um, he, Alvarez Ovai was an important writer of like essentially church music for the most part uh, throughout Guatemala. He wrote hymns, he wrote requiems. Uh, And he became a very renowned composer. When he passed away, the capital flag was flown at half-mast and he would be buried in the National Cemetery. Uh, So let's talk, apropos of nothing, there's no mysteries that need to be solved. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Let's
0: talk about a guy named Jose Joaquin Palma. He was born in Cuba in 1844 and was a poet who worked for a bit, uh, sorry, that's probably 19... I don't know. Now, this timeline seems all fucked. Maybe I got something wrong here. He was a poet from Cuba who, like, fought in revolutions. Maybe not the Castro revolution. That timeline's seeming all fucked now. Um, but he was mainly known at the time for his, like, political poetry. Uh, and he was also really close with, at the time, the presidents of both Guatemala and the Honduras. Uh, So he was like a connected guy. He knew all the politicians. He was in close with them. He was working with political groups in several countries. And he actually ended up being on the board that selected the poem. And it was not until he was very ill and basically on his deathbed in 1910 that he revealed he had been the writer of the poem.
1: That's a huge conflict of interest. It,
0: to be fair, it was selected unanimously, yeah. but I struggle to believe that no one knew he had written it. Yeah.
2: Yeah, that's a little bit on the nose. Like
0: <laughs> Yeah, like he had actually worked directly for the Honduran president for a brief while. He's he's an incredibly connected man. So I find this story a little suspicious. But uh when he passed away in nineteen eleven, uh Yakabo Arbenz would agree. To Sorry, although he passed away in 1911, Jacobo Arbenz in 1951 would agree to a request by the Cuban government, along with Palma's family's blessing, to return Palma's ashes to his native Cuba, where they would be received by the president and the cabinet and given a place of honor in the Capitol building. Uh, Finally, I want to talk about one last guy related to the anthem, and that's a guy named Jose Maria Bonilla. And he was a Guatemalan academic. He had written a number of texts on language and like the humanities. He had written a lot of stuff that was sort of being taught at the time. And around 1934, he published a work whose Spanish title I will not I will spare you the the butchery that I would do to it, but it's called Critical Didactic Annotations. And basically what he did in this piece is he annotated the entire national anthem, left notes like directly relating to each line saying, this is what I would change, this is why I would change it. And the government would officially adopt those changes in 1934, leading to the lyrics that we have today.
1: Overall, this is a pretty old anthem compared to some of the others. It I've is, seen. yeah. But I'd say one
0: of the oldest we've looked at.
1: Yeah, because when I think about it, most of them come up in like the 50s or the 60s or even the 70s, some places. Yeah. Um, this one is older than those. So.
0: so that's the whole story I have for the anthem. Um, we did listen to one version that was a pre-Bonia sort of original recording, but I don't actually have a... English recording, or an English translation of those lyrics, so we're going off of the Bonilla updated ones. So, you guys ready to uh, get into some ratings here? Yeah, let's do it. All right. Let's talk about the lyrics. I do think there's a lot of strengths here. I just, uh, I wish it was so much shorter than it is.
1: Yeah, I really agree with that. I think... The the lyrics themselves as a poem are quite nice and quite meaningful and have some of that specificity that we miss some other places.
0: Absolutely. There's some stuff here that that I really like. I love that they bring up the national bird towards the end there. I, yeah, I definitely agree that there's some really nice specificity to these lyrics and I think I will score it really highly on significance to the country.
1: I think that's fair. It just goes on and on yeah. and on.
0: But some of it's so great. And to my understanding, some of the updates that Bonilla had recommended were not just like, this is going to sort of read better as a political statement. Some of them were like, this is going to be more poetically beautiful also, which I think is super fun. Um,
2: yeah. Yeah. Some really lovely stuff in there, too, uh, like, especially when it comes to... I I really like the for the first verse there, um, and how it connects into the last one, with the like shaking off the whole colonialism of Spain, and then the praising their native bird over the royal eagle of Spain. Yeah, I think that's, I of think of that's
0: such a great symbol there. I'm gonna go for these lyrics probably a seven and i think those three points are being lost because this thing drags
1: i think for me i'm gonna go eight
0: an eight for kate dan how are you feeling
2: um i think i'd give it a seven it is so long you are very right about that there's a lot in the middle there that really lags
0: yeah and the music i think is not bad but there's so little variety for such a long anthem again it's just the same thing and the music i think is probably where i'm going to dock this thing a lot of its marks it's a little dull for me though I I do adore the marimba symphony. I think that's going to gain it a point or two in X Factor later on.
2: I, I quite enjoyed the uh, the second one with the really old timey. Yeah, kind I didn't of mind that one it.
0: either. I thought it had some really fun harmonies.
2: Yeah, like it, it it was a fun a fun song. It was it was very repetitive though. Yeah,
0: right? that's that's I think my main knock. And I think I'm gonna go somewhere. I think I'm gonna go right down the middle here and give it a five.
1: Yeah, I was feeling a five as well. I think we talk often about sort of malleability and adaptability, and I don't get that yeah. here really at all. It's very samey, and I don't know. Like, I'm sure you, you could rework it. I have not seen that in practice. So Yeah, I agree. and I
0: didn't find a ton of super different versions. In fact, the this is maybe the first time that there's been one really dominant overarching version that's used in, like, Every link I could find to the anthem and I didn't end up using it. It's a super bland like children's choir recording.
2: Um, I think I'd give it a six. Like I wasn't bored. It wasn't amazing, but it was fun
0: the background story for this one, although I do find Palma's story hilariously suspicious (laughs) and none of the sources I looked at were like, obviously Palma greased everyone's palms. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No one else seemed to find this suspicious in like the academic record from what I could see, even though it's so obvious. Um, I actually really thought the story for this one was quite fun. I liked how they reused the music from the old unofficial competition and that the guy had become sort of a, a star in that intervening time.
2: I, I liked the mystery where we didn't know who wrote the lyrics at one point. That was really fun. Yeah,
1: I think just that it's like there there is a story. Half the time we get here and it's like someone wrote it, someone also wrote the music, and now we can go home. Yeah. This had like some plot and some intrigue, and so I think it will definitely get higher marks from me for that.
0: Yeah, I think I'm going to go for a 9 for background story on this one.
1: Yeah, I agree. I'm going to go
2: 8.5. Yeah, I I could give that a 9. I like a mystery.
0: And let's talk about significance to the country, which I think is this anthem's other really great strength. I think there's a lot of specificity in here, too. Guatemalan symbols and history, and there's so much like, tying the people who created the anthem to the country. Like, the the theater where this anthem was originally performed was the cultural center before the one I've talked about a couple times now that's named after Asturias. Uh, The original cultural center is where the composer of this anthem was, like, the main conductor at this point. Uh, it would later come down in, I think, an earthquake, uh, but I only skimmed that. So,
2: did, didn't did it get dis- didn't Guatemala City get destroyed by an earthquake earlier in? The no, history- old
0: Guatemala City got destroyed oh. by an earthquake earlier in history, but is now also, I believe, one of the largest cities in the modern nation because the earthquake was in like seventeen seventy six or something. So many
2: earthquakes in that area, though.
0: Yeah, I believe the city's close to a fault line. Sorry.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I think um for significance I would probably go 9.
0: Yeah, I, I think, think I'm going to go for probably an 8.5 here. Yeah. Damn.
2: Yeah, I I'd, I'd, I'd give it a
0: 9. And uh how about X factor?
1: I think there is some X factor here. It does drag, though. It does. Which and knocks it down a little bit from really my perspective. The
0: biggest weakness of this whole anthem is how much it drags. And it sucks that it's going to take away so many points from what I think is, at its core, a reasonably solid anthem. Um, I love the Marimba Symphony so much. <laughs> it's such a fun idea. I I would love to be in the room when someone... It was, like, a big event with some important-looking people there, and I want so badly to be a fly on the wall in the room where some guy's like, okay, so the performance is going to be, like, just a shitload of marimbas, (laughs) and then, like, an 11-year-old girl singing, and that's it.
2: Yeah, that is just a great situation. (laughs) Like, that's pretty stellar, but...
0: Uh, Marimba Symphony gains this a good couple points for X-Factor for me. I love it so much. Uh, It's okay if you don't feel the same way. I understand. (laughs) Um, I'm going to go for probably a 6.5 for X-Factor here.
1: Yeah, I was going to go 6 as well. Uh, I'd give that a 5, I
2: think.
0: A 5. Warren is crazy about the Marimba Symphony.
1: X-Factor is complicated.
0: It is. X-Factor is a deeply personal... (laughs) category you really gotta pour your soul out on that one you know for next time now
2: yeah yeah (laughs) i'll work on that
0: so let's take a little moment then and tally up those scores So that brings us to a total score of 74 out of 100, which I believe after our most recent Laos episode will put us in sixth place overall, which is not a bad place. That's
1: pretty good. It's a bit higher than I thought it was going to be. Yeah,
0: me too, actually. We've got a lot of stuff in the 60s. The 60s are are the, the middle that everyone falls into yeah. in this show, it seems. It's
1: a good old C+.
0: So... I think, uh, yeah, we should just, uh, mention the food really quick that we made this week. Our good friend Dan here is an excellent cook and helped us put it together. So you had found a recipe that is essentially a copycat recipe of a fried chicken chain in Guatemala.
2: Yeah. Uh, so it's a recipe from, um, a cook on a food blog I like called Serious Eats, um, I don't remember their name off the top of my head. I'm sure Aaron can link it.
0: I believe it's somehow. Pollo Campero was the name of the the chain.
2: Um, no, I'm thinking of oh, the, um, uh, the the cook's name who yes, wrote yeah. the article. But I will link uh,
0: to the recipe in the show it's notes a, for It's sure. a lovely
2: little article about uh, um, a person whose mother always brings them fried chicken from this Guatemalan fried chicken chain, yeah. I guess. And it's a copycat recipe of that.
0: It was fantastic i sort of forgot to make anything for a side so like the meal as a whole was a bit of a disaster but the chicken was incredible oh my god so crispy so spicy
1: yeah the chicken was great i um i really enjoyed that i love fried chicken anyways but this one was just the spice level was perfect
0: it really was uh that's all i have to say about it that was that was one of our most delicious meals on the show so far i think And uh, I got to draw a number and see what I'm doing next week. So let's take a quick second and I will find out what my fate is. Kate hit me with a little 73.
1: Okay. 73 is our first repeat.
0: Our first repeat. 73 is Guatemala 73 is Guatemala amazing roll
1: again Aaron I will do
0: that and maybe we will have to shrink the list for next week finally we may find a smaller dice than our (laughs) magical 206 sided one we might have reached that point how about some 179 okay let's check
1: 179 gives you Switzerland.
0: Hell yeah. (laughs) Let's learn all about weird neutrality and probably a lot of Nazi gold and also chocolate.
1: Yeah, do we get to eat that next time for our food?
0: I don't know. I might. I don't know. Can we at least eat it? I've been to Switzerland. Yeah. So, like, this, this is the most prepared I've ever felt.
1: <laughs> That's fair. I feel we should at least get chocolate as well as whatever else we oh, make. Oh,
0: definitely we should get chocolate. At the very least, like, some fucking Lindors or something. Yeah. All right. So we will be back next week for Kate covering... What are you doing next week?
1: Uh, Iceland.
0: Iceland. Iceland. Oh, these are going to be sec. a fun two weeks. All right, folks, check in uh, next week for Iceland. we get something very wrong did we skip an entire part of the story that's worth mentioning that's very likely and we'd love to hear the correct version please tweet us at iaouc podcast or send us an email at in all of us command at gmail.com we record these episodes a bit in advance so you may not hear a correction right away but we are not too big to admit we are wrong and it will be corrected